You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. I am a bedroom Beethoven. <laughs> hey everybody, welcome to episode 154 of the podcast. What? My guest this week is... My name is Sean McPherson. I'm the co-founder and bass player in High Respects. That's a hip-hop group that got started in St. Paul in 1997. And we've had the honor of collaborating and sharing stage with a whole lot of people, including doing a tour with Cake, Lyrics Born, a lot of work with a lot of people in Minnesota, um, opening up for the White Stripes. A lot of, a lot of great opportunities across these uh, almost 25 years. friends who keep on my fifth day, my day off, I'm up early. The early worm gets the big bite by little birdie. The early bird gets chased and caught by the cat. Watch your back, little bird, because I'm up from my nap. Yes, I got a cable TV and I got a cable mic. It's only got one channel, but the reception is tight. I'm flying by the seat of my pants. So at the end of the night, your records come alive and beg for the daylight. Now, miles away, my brother's in his room playing games like Starcraft, burning other people to flames. And likewise, right here. Right now, the show of aggression. Fingers, mic, next lesson. This session gets deeper. Follow me through. I brought my pen and pad and just a little inspiration to guide you with. You could just listen and learn. It's in the burn. Fishing for the rhythm. We're giving them to return. Saying it's for the last This is admittedly a selfish episode for me. I'm one of the many but not talked about people who are die-hard, high-respect fans. I remember when Cake wanted them. I remember when Jurassic 5 wanted them. I remember Soundset. I remember being in my dorm room in college listening to Fives over and over and Heartstrings over and over and thinking, this music is unlike anything I've ever heard. It combines melodies, bass lines, scratching, and lyrics I can relate to. Sure, listening to Ice Cube was fun, but I wasn't running on people with the nines and hitting switches in my car. This was it. And fast forward, I have this podcast, and one of my favorite guests to host are the ones in their 40s and 50s who can sit back with me and just reflect on the story, unpack the blur of touring and making classic jams and how it results in a better life for themselves. There are joys that you only earn through time, things you can't hurry through, last pages you can't skip to. And Sean McPherson is the leader of said band, and he has been in the band High Respect since fall of 1997 when Felix and him stopped messing around in their high school music classes and they decided to start to put a band together. And it's been it's been clear to him that since he's tried to break up, this is going to be the most professional thing he's going to do in his life. And by important, I mean important. So thanks for tuning in as we dive into the story, the 10,000-hour journey, and what that entails. And like always, please, please support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash bedroombeethovens. The website is bedroombeethovens.com. All the socials, you know where to find me. Thank you for your support week in and week out. Let's get this show started.
I, I do want to congratulate you on uh, being named the music director at Jazz 88. Yes, yes. I, you know, I didn't know how high respect centric to make this, but uh, I just switched day jobs. I had been a host on The Current in Minnesota, and now I'm moving to KBA, KBEM Jazz 88, both as the music director and afternoon host. And I haven't started yet. I got uh, two weeks of sort of in-between time, which is blissful. It almost seems like a late night show host gig, like taking over for Johnny Carson, because Kevin O'Connor, who you're replacing, was there for 27 years. So when you <laughs> when you fill in for him, are those kind of expectations in place? Like, hey, Jimmy Fallon, if, if we give you the show, we expect you to be there for a while, you know? <laughs> I, I think there is a little bit of that pressure when you're stepping up to join – like if the person before you did it for three years, they laid down some kind of legacy, but this is a little bit different because Kevin built something out of that afternoon shift and was really, I mean, you, like you said, he was there for 20 plus years. I have the luck that I've gotten to sit down with Kevin and talk to him about what he did. And I was an avid listener of the show already, but yeah, there, there's some big shoes to fill to be sure. I do want to plug the current too, because what's interesting is, I always have these self-doubts about my own content. Like, I did an hour-long interview with Pharaoh Monch, and it has 400 views. You know what I mean? The Current has 350,000 subscribers, and there's an Elvis Costello interview with 288 views, which is ludicrous. And it, it, it makes me wonder if there's like a Lady Gaga interview on YouTube with like 300 views that nobody knows about. But, uh, you know, it, it made me feel good about my numbers because it's not always a direct reflection of the quality. It's, you know, for one reason or another, maybe the algorithm doesn't reach people. But I don't know. Life is funny and that's the Internet for you. Yeah. And uh, being in some of those meetings where people try to make sense of that stuff, there's certain ones that are head scratchers in both directions where you go, OK, and so that one got 400,000 views and this one got sub 1000. And yeah, at some point you just go. It's not all to chance, you know, like across your career, if you're making good content, that's going to show up. And across your career, if you're making bad content, that's going to show up. But you do have those moments where you go, really? Feral Monch didn't hit? Tw Twinkie Jiggles got more than Feral Monch? What the <laughs> hell is going on? So uh, <laughs> I, I feel you there. It's because, you know, like, you know, you, you put out quality content. A lot of people probably don't know that somewhere in Dave Chappelle's house contains your entire discography. <laughs> that, that, that's right. I, I, I completely get, I get where you're at with that. So that, that, that some of those things are just, you have to, you have to recognize that I had, I've had to recognize since being doing radio, that incredible people can be hearing what you're doing and a whole bunch of people can have no idea who you are and that that is important. But yeah, you're bringing me back to when Dave Chappelle you know, sent what was then our complete discography in like 2002, sent his assistant to our show in Denver and she bought up the whole table and she was like, yeah, this is for Dave Chappelle. And that was quite a goosebumping moment for us. Yeah. I mean, when, when he was doing his show, there could have been a real world possibility of him calling you guys to do it, to be the musical guest. That's right. Unless he listened and he said, this is crap. <laughs> this is, <laughs> I doubt this, that. This is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, first and foremost, do I, I do want to ask, uh, how you're feeling, man? Because I and I and I wanted to say big ups to Sadie because my seven year old daughter Ophelia, when she found out that I had COVID, she just said, "Sorry, you have COVID, Daddy," and went to go play on her tablet. Even though I'm 99 percent sure I got it from her, but your daughter bought you flowers, so you're obviously doing something right in the father department. You know, I I got I, a I have a daughter, I have two daughters, but my four and a half year old Sadie is very obsessed, not so much with flowers, but with buying flowers the moment we walk into any store that has them at the front of them. Um, in the end, I don't know if you wish you had done this differently. I wish the minute I got COVID 
that we hadn't tried to separate as a family because it was hopeless. So I did the whole thing of being in the basement for a week. And on the like first day I come up, Sadie tests or t- Sadie tests positive two days after that. And then Naomi tests positive and then my wife tests positive. And we're all healthy. We're all doing good. I'm very thankful that everybody who is able to is fully vaccinated and boosted. Our kids aren't because they're under five. But uh, the whole thought that we could sequester me for a week, it didn't work out. I sh- we should have just all jumped in the bed, smallpox style, and made the whole family get it. Well, I'm just glad to hear everybody's safe. And uh, Yes, that's the important part. If I'm focusing on you, on, on your younger days, now, if you can remember any any lyrics from your fungal toxins days, as an, as an, as an adult, you now have the confidence to belt out those lyrics. What kind of rhymes would we hear when, when you were rapping like as a 12-year-old? Wow, you are a uh, you are a well researched uh, host for this I event. Um, kind of Nardwar esque, uh, <laughs> knowing all these very deep things. Um, so fungal toxins. I was in sixth grade. We played only in our school's gym and one party in North Adams, but that quote unquote tour was called "Letting Loose the Lentils," and I was the guitar player and singer. And I will say that I know almost nothing about what came of what that band was doing. This is a band where I was playing guitar and writing words, but nobody sang them because I was too afraid to sing them. And then I had a drummer friend named Brad Schroeder who, who played the drums. What I will tell you is that after that, Marcello, I did, um, I was in a band called grin in middle school. And we had like a song called telephone girl. That is a legitimately good punk rock song where I wrote it and it was just A to C to G and it was like telephone girl. Da, 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 da. But like, if I, if, if I haven't seen my brother in a while and he pulls up a guitar, he will still play that lick. And we remember how to play that song and it had some staying power. So fungal toxins, absolute joke, but that next band grin, we had that tune. We had water's edge. We had a couple like tolerable songs that I could still tell you. I'm not saying they stand up, but I'm saying they have some merit. I'm, I'm excited to hear that stuff because I, I think my journey with you guys started with how most people, and that was the song Fives, which is the song that you thought was going to change everyone's right. life. And whether it did or not, it, it, it's irrelevant to my point, but I just I want to tell you that I heard that song for the first time and I instantly swallowed up your discography. I've been a fan ever since. Talking about you know the early oh. bird worm gets the big bite. My dad used to say that to me when I was a kid. I got cable TV and I only have one channel, but the reception's tight. That's my childhood. Playing StarCraft, burning people to flames. <laughs> That's my teenage years, you know. So Felix's years or his uh, his lyrics turned me into a like a forever fan at that point. And uh, there there was a there was wow. a tweet last year. I think it was Pete Rock or some big artist. Maybe it was Ninth Wonder. And he said, "What's a hip hop band that doesn't get talked about enough?" And I thought I was being you know, super obscure and cool. And I, I said the, the hero specs and Jay live replied and said, Oh, they opened up for me. I love them. And I was like, Oh, other people know about this band other than me. And, and I was like, well, where are these guys? I want to talk to them. And and I think we're traveled to you guys. And I think you started following me on Twitter like a year later. Uh, but then, you know, we finally made it happen. So that's awesome. Oh man. That is, that is such an honor to hear about. And, the fact that Jay Live uh, digs what we do, it was one of those early, early highlights in my career where basically we had played together at University of Minnesota and we just shared a bill. And there's other people that were down with Jay Live from DC and there's their names escape me, but they we then were playing a show together at McAllister 
And it was organized by the Black Student Union. And when we got there to load in, we were Higher Specs is a notoriously early group. So we were way earlier than Jay Live, even though he wasn't late. And the guy said that when he told them, when he told Jay Live's management that we were play, that they were playing with Higher Specs, he's like, that's one of my favorite groups from anywhere. I love what they do. And as a person who is a huge fan of Jay Live, I've always just thought that was it was it was such an honor and um, I've had I've had a couple times I've gotten to interact with Jay Live and I've always had such a smile on my face that he even knows who we are, let alone thinks we're pretty dope. So. Yeah, and we, and we talked about it too. He, he was like, you know, unless you're like DJ Premier, scratching vocals in a song is very very hard, but you guys achieve that right. very very well. We had we we're, we're very lucky to have Felix, although he's a rapper in a live band. And although he loves dance music, he kind of has a little bit of a, uh, like um, he's, he's very focused on authenticity and he envisions a lot of like, there's rules like, no, we can't do that. His aesthetics were very helpful in making us respected by other MCs and other producers because growing up being a bassist, I just was like, oh, we should do this, a full entire cover of a Michael Jackson song. And Felix was like, we don't do that. That's that's not a thing that happens. If we're going to do something with somebody else's music, we have to put our own touch on it. This is not a genre where you can just cover a tune. And likewise, in a lot of rehearsals early on, I would be just, I would say to Muad'Dib, like, just scratch something. We just need a little more. And he's like, no. You know, if you're actually scratching with a turntable, you need to pick something to scratch. You can't just say scratch something. And so it was always this idea of like, what is the content that he's working from? Where is what? And, and, and so he made us, he, he kept us on our fundamentals in a way that really, I think, A, I think it made the music better because we were still willing to break rules when we needed to. But he also just uh, helped us command a level of sort of like awareness, maybe of how it's done or how it should be done within hip hop again, broke the rules plenty, but he knew kind of the fundamentals to start with. Did you guys realize all that when you're playing, you know, frat parties with Sage Francis or is this much later? That is a perfect example of a time when we did realize it. So I spent a year, uh, in I guess fall of 99 into the year 2000 going to school in Vermont and I booked a couple random gigs a lot of them alongside Felix but at some point I had a gig and Felix wasn't there and I needed to put together this group and and it's you know Marcello that's very, very interesting that we did do this frat party at Wesleyan in Connecticut where it was basically me and a drummer and I think a guitar player and then Sage Francis an advisor from Odd Jobs as sort of the MCs. And that is one of those gigs that will test your aesthetic. Inside your eyes, it's upside down. We all perceive it right. We all believe it's right. Cause what's light into the night? But it's all white. Technically, this man is screaming desperately. The camera in the lights, he closes his eyes to see. Because they will say, Hey, we got 500 bucks for you if you play for two hours. And when you are filling that third or fourth half hour, it is very easy to go, let's bullshit. And we absolutely did do that. And we stretched and there's things we played that I think were just like, didn't make sense, but we had to get 
We had to get those five hundred dollars. So at some point you take those gigs because you go, that's cool. And then there comes to be a point where you go like, we can't do a good two hour gig. We're going to compromise what our presentation is. If we do that, let's slow it down or let's turn it down or let's bring our own opener to fill the time. But yeah, uh, I certainly think we cut some aesthetic corners while playing a frat party at Wesleyan University where they filled the house with sand and it was us and Sage Francis uh, filling up two hours of time. So what's so magical about a horn section that really teaches you guys how to really start playing together and gelling as an ensemble? A horn section requires making a lot of decisions in advance, which forces you to think a little bit more about your decisions. So, the fact that we started off really just as bass and drums and MCs, but pretty quickly went to being a horn section, it meant that you couldn't just wing it. You could have moments of improvisation, but if you got that many people who are sort of functioning as a unison sound, you have to, and I use unison lately because we're definitely a lot of harmony, but you know what I mean? Like one, one horn section you have to make these decisions about here's here's how this part will sound. Here's how loud we'll play this part. We're going to go into this part and stretch out, but we'll see why. We, we know where we're going to be when we can come back. So it forced us to be a little less improvisatory, which then inspired us to really carve out great moments of improvisation because we said, okay, we can't wing it all the time. So at these handful of moments in our set, we don't know what's coming next or Martin's taking a solo or this person is take Alex is going to take a trumpet solo. And that, that gave us one of, I think one of our early tools, which was being a live band with good arrangements. You mentioned Martin, Kevin and Martin are added to the mix. What did you conclude at that time? Was Felix motivated and maybe Martin and Kevin weren't. What kind of drove you to rearranging the band a little bit? We had a, a ragtag assembly of musicians when I was in high school before I left for college that included Kevin, Martin, and many other players, Josh, who's still in the band, um, and Al on trumpet and Brian Alvarez on trombone. Some of those folks just left for college the same year I did. Some of those folks left for college the year before I did. Some of those folks left for college the year after I did. What I realized after I was at Bennington for a year, which is it, that is in Vermont. So when I lived in Vermont, I was going to Bennington. What I realized when I came back was okay, there's something that could actually happen with this group. We have some commercial promise, we have some financial promise, and we certainly have artistic promise. We got to get the right players together to make that happen. And as I started to decide that, some of the players that I felt best about. We're leaving for college, Josh Peterson, Al McIntosh. And I said, okay, so what I got is the, the, the nucleus, once those guys leave, is me on bass, Kevin on drums, and Martin on saxophone. For the record, Kevin Hunt and Martin Devaney are my two best friends to this day. And it's a tribute to our maturity and, frankly, their maturity and ability to forgive that they, they are because that summer – I just said, okay, I don't think that's the nucleus to get started with. I don't think 
a drum kit and one saxophone and me is like the start of how we're going to build this next chapter in the band. So I looked to a couple older people. When I say older, I mean like 25, um, look to a couple older people in the scene to recommend some players and connect with some players. And I very unceremoniously stopped calling Kevin and Martin to be a part of higher specs. I, I, I did it passively. I didn't say, Hey, you're fired. They just suddenly started to see flyers with higher specs on there that they hadn't gotten asked about. I have forgiven myself for that. And I've asked for their forgiveness. And I think it was the right thing to do musically and artistically, because it, even though those, those two individuals are incredibly talented, I was able, I, I saw that I thought the nucleus was me and Felix and we had to build around that nucleus. And now the nucleus is much more than me and Felix, but I knew that that was where it should start. And I started building around that instead of building around that quartet. It was ugly. It was difficult. Uh, a lot, a, a lot of things I would do differently, but I think I did move in the right direction to get players where the centerpiece of it could be Felix's rapping and my writing alongside other people's writing, but without as much as I loved what we learned from the horn section, it it's a lot of a commitment to a particular sound. And I thought that being more keyboard guitar oriented would give us a wider palette to work. Well, with. so yeah, there's this movie with uh, Vera Farmiga and George Clooney called up in the air. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but basically is that where he goes and fires people? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So he he's like a professional firer. And that was kind of my introduction. Like, oh, corporations hire a person to fire subordinates if they don't have the guts, will, or the time to. So he flies out and he sits old Pete down at his desk while looking at a picture frame of his family on his desk and says, Pete, you no longer work here. And I think 99% of the people grab a cardboard box and they start filling it. But then I also realized, well, maybe they hire George Clooney's character because some people react to bad news unpredictably. So, you know, is having that hard conversation with someone just hard to do in a band? Is there is is there no good way to let someone go? Because I, I you know, there was a keyboard player a couple of years later where you kind of had to face that same incident, and it, it, you know, I know you've forgiven yourself, but if you could transport yourself back to that time, there's no easy way to do that. Right. There's no easy way to do that, but there's a way where you can focus the pain of it, A, at a moment where you're there so that you can be the face of it, you can receive it, and you can own it as an adult. I was barely an adult, Marcello. Like I was I was uh, done with being a freshman in college, so I was, I was far from fully grown. But all that anger that could come from being dismissed from a band should be able to be directed at the people who are doing the dismissing. And if the only way you hear about it is via flyer, or the only way you hear about it is because I'm your roommate and there's new drummers calling up because they want to audition and you're answering the phone. It's that moment where if I could go back, let me look you in the face and go, the band needs to move in a different direction. And, and you're not going to be a part of that next direction. It still would have been hard, but that's one of those things. I, I think about that movie. I did see that movie. George Clooney served a purpose. Not only did it help these executives avoid something that I think, frankly, they should have done. He also probably was good at it. And now I'm at the point where, you know, when we parted ways with Tasha, that wasn't perfect. I don't think Tasha left that experience happy, but we did have face-to-face -face conversations about it. I do feel like we were accountable and we did talk through it. And I, you know, I get the impression 
that that's largely how Tasha feels as well. So I'm sure I could have done that uh, dismissal better, but it was done better than I did with Kevin and Martin. Well, the redemption arc is, you know, you're going from Bennington to now you have like a college fund. You know, have, have you caught up with anyone who was awarded a $1,500 scholarship from your fund? Have they gone on to big success? Have you followed up with any of the recipients? Yeah. Golden crimson tinged flittering leaves litter the streets. Sitting beneath a tree, she sleeps innocently. Didn't believe that a being so beautiful flew this low. Using slumber to stun others with features almost musical. And when best of me, let it be. To quest for the recipe to wrestle the delicate thread embedded in the chest of she so Bring heart heads to me, yes indeed, let's proceed Sensibly in depth, pensively and intensely She made my heart shrink, stretch screams like a toss string Fred swings, that's sketchy, still up and jewels grab through the treble clefts Better get another palm bolted in it, broke again A thousand of us that it's only ten uh, High Respects is about maybe 12, 13 years after When we're talking about after my freshman year uh, We were like, let's do Let's form a scholarship at our high school because our high school was so instrumental in us becoming a band. So we've funded uh, well over $20,000 of uh, scholarship funds to different young students across the last 10 plus years. And it's really been the brightest shining star of the second half of our careers that we've been able to do that. Um, the, the really cool thing that I've seen is... I, I try to follow the people on Twitter if they're doing Twitter who win these scholarships. And I try to follow them. I don't do a lot of Instagram, but if, if they're doing Instagram, I try to follow them there. And what I'm seeing is just something like a young woman who res- received our scholarship was instrumental in organizing a walkout of, of St. Paul Central surrounding, um, I believe, issues related to uh, Black Lives Matter. So sort of in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And it's, it's this woman where she came back because you get that you get those funds from the high respect scholarship when you're done with high school, right? But she came back as a freshman in college and helped organize this thing because there were statements that her and other age mates and students had to make. And I sent that one around like, look, this is a woman who obviously is shining. She wasn't $1,500 short of shining. She was going to shine. But we had some part in her getting the bills covered for her to be at school and maybe some of that money meant that she didn't have to be working the day that she was able to organize this walkout. And it, it was one of those moments that I said, that's just a little snapshot. I get to see people who go on and I find out that they're winning slam poetry competitions, or I find out that they're still pursuing the arts well after they graduate uh, college. That doesn't have to be every scholarship recipient. We're totally happy when we know that there's folks who became scholarship, higher spec scholarship recipients and go on to a life in biology or to a life in, you know, the culinary arts. But those moments when we see people thrive after we've supported them, that really, it really, it makes it all worth it. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And, and who's, who's Michael McPherson? Is he related to you? Yes. Very, a slightly interesting question because of things right now in my life. Michael McPherson is my father. So Mike, Mike McPherson is my father. Notably, there's, there's a, a a person who is a bit of a criminal in Pennsylvania whose name is Sean Michael McPherson, of which I have no relation, but it's been on my mind because I've been doing background checks because I'm switching jobs. But Michael McPherson is my father. I think I have the right one because just a, just yes. a few months ago, he put up a big donation to the fund. So I, I just thought that was awesome that uh, <laughs> the, the scholarship is is still getting funded. It's still involved all these years. You know, I, I was curious, so I, I, I peaked. Yes. Yeah. No, that would be my dad. And, and he... 
I'm I'm lucky that he has made he has significant funds to get out to different organizations, and he's he's smiled upon the Higher Spec Scholarship, which has been uh, uh, very helpful for us because there's years where we've been too busy to um to really uh, uh promote the scholarship fund. We've always been able to fund it, but the way you get other people to step in is either you play concerts and you get people to step in, or sometimes your dad goes. Okay, cool. I'm gonna send a check over, and that's that's very that's very helpful. Well, I, I know I'm I know I'm flip flopping here. There's just a lot of history to get through. Uh, I, I did want to get sure. back to how you felt about the chemical makeup of the band because Small Steps comes out. You even got Slug on there, but more importantly, Alex and Josh are on the record. Do you feel like yeah, this is solid. This works. Uh, Alex is not on Small Steps. He's not on that. Um, okay. So on small steps, I think Alex Danovich has a writing credit. Tasha, the keyboard player after Alex Danovich, is on it. So Tasha's on small steps. Josh is on it. Um, and I feel really small steps was our business card to get out and start building up our own our own thing in the country. And it was really good for that. So I feel great for that record. There's a fair amount of people who feel like that's their favorite record. And that is the sort of, um, I don't want to say the simplest record. I, I don't even mean musically. What I mean is everything that was happening for Higher Specs at that point, business-wise, almost all of it was cash. And I could put almost all of my hands on it in this sense of going like, Wow, every couple months we're ordering another thousand of these CDs. People are buying this. Oh wow. Like we we went and played Madison. Last time it was 120 people. This time it's 260 people. And it was so it it, it felt like one of those things where you get a piece of workout and if it's good, it literally changes the trajectory of your career. And it was one of those things where I felt like we were like Oh, a, a feel-good live hip-hop band that they're going to call for a couple things in town because we're young and we got the right vibe and we sound pretty good live. To suddenly, there's people who are like, I brought this disc into my home and my whole family loves it. And I need to buy two more copies to make sure that somebody else loves it. And if somebody gets it and they move to Montana, they're going to want to get us to come play in Montana. So it, it, I'm happy with it as a piece of work. And its function as a business card to get us out nationally was really great. And also, I mean, Tasha's playing on the record is wonderful. Um, it was, it was a great moment getting to collaborate with people. We had Quasar, we had uh, slug, we had POS, um, we had medium Zach or not medium Zach. We had big Zach on that record. Um, it was just, I, I just have very fond memories of recording. See, if I was Nardwar, I would have known who played on that. So, <laughs> you know what the th the thing is i do a fair amount of interviews for my day job and i think you're doing an incredible job i struggle to know this much about like the lead singer the war on drugs and he's a lot easier to research than i am you know like the man has a much bigger profile so uh marcello i don't think you should uh, i think you, i don't think you should feel bad about uh, that slip up at all and i see nardwar slip up too like i've seen him like somebody's just like nah that ain't right that's not that's not who i played with on that record so well if i can redeem myself you said that you played with the white stripes and there a little birdie told me that you yelled at meg white once cuz she left her drums <laughs> in the middle of the stage yes i i did and yell is slightly <laughs> is that in the years when when people would pretend like that was her his sister and not his wife 
And and the thing is, I knew nothing about that. The very funny thing about that show is that I think Higher Specs was getting $200, and I'm guessing the White Stripes were getting like $1,500. Like, they were not a huge name. They were playing at the cafe at Bennington College. I had been there the year before, and I thought I could get a gig whenever I wanted, so I called up Karina, the woman who did the booking, and I was like, I need a, I need a gig on this Tuesday because we're playing New York the night before, and we're, we're going to play Boston the night after. And she was like, you're not going to believe this, but that's the one night I have a band book. They're called the White Stripes. And I was like, I have no idea who you're talking about. Can we open for them? And they said, yes. The reason I, I, I gave Meg an earful is because they knew that another band was coming to open. And it's a little cafe stage. And she had her drum kit set up square in the middle of the stage, as she should. That was the look of the band. But if you know an opening act's coming and you know you got to go back uh, to the little house they have for you to crash move the move the drum set off the stage so that i don't have to move it and what what bugged me at the time is that it looked like jack white had moved his shit off like the guitar was all the way back the guitar was in its case but the drum kit was just like sitting right there when i when meg came back and i was like hey uh we we opened for you we had a good show i'm a little frustrated that like you hadn't moved the drum kit at all she was nothing but apologetic. And I wasn't a, a dick in my opinion about, I said it kind of like that, maybe a little more 19 years old, like, Hey, look, I were playing a set and you had to move all the stuff back. And she just said, I'm so sorry. I'm so tired. They got us traveling like crazy. <laughs> You're right. I should have moved the drum kit back. And I was like, all good. Uh, also, I think the white stripes are incredible. And that night I was like, this is horrible. I did not enjoy the sound of that band at all. And I think I just wasn't ready for how primal they were. Because now I listen to White Stripes, even early White Stripes, and I go, this is spectacular. But on that night, I was like, "Who? what is this? Why didn't she move her drum kit? And so, yeah, and I, you know, right before a Tiger Dancing was finished, I think you can relate. I mean, you, you were on the road for, what, 250 days out of the whole year. So I, yeah. there's that fatigue. and You can get short with people. It's all understandable. You know, I mean, you went on tour with Mac Lethal. That guy, he has a reputation of being a jerk. But, you know, hopefully he treated you okay. <laughs> he did. And he does have a reputation of being a jerk. And he was really a jerk, but in the most great ways and never to his fellow tour mates. He just knew that, you know, the Mac Lethal show was a thing. And he knew how to push people's buttons and and, and poke a little bit of fun at people. And I don't know. I've, I've always had a, a soft spot in my heart for Mac. And that was that was during heavy touring days. Uh, I remember us we were supposed to stay in the same place, the same people's house in Iowa City. And I had found my bed. I was laying on the floor somewhere, and everybody in Harrisbecks had some place to sleep in this kind of flop house in Iowa City. And uh, Mac and Joe Good, uh, the other guy who was traveling with, walked in, and Mac was like, "We're not staying here." Like loud enough for the owners to hear, but it was just like, "This is not happening." And they turned around and left because they did not. They did not like the look of the thing. So if he did not like what was happening, he had no problem. <laughs> and how people. how far is Iowa City from Grinnell? Uh, probably, and it's pronounced Grinnell. He's we're, Grinnell. we're probably like maybe an hour and a half away, but we were playing in Iowa City. So he had every reason to want to stay in Iowa City. And I think it was like the next night that we played in Grinnell. But uh, – I think they just went and got a hotel. So, And the truth is, sometimes you go into a place. The only thing I really remember about this place is uh, uh, an older woman, older to us at the time, so probably now like my age, you know, early 40s, doing bong hits and watching the weather like at full volume. And her face is like four inches away from the TV. And I, I just I can imagine that you walk in and you just go, 
ah, I think I'm ready to spend the $65 on that Super 8. I don't really want to find out what this woman is going to be like when she stops doing bong rips and watching <laughs> the jet stream. So. If you guys uh, stopped at more hotels, then you then you probably wouldn't have flipped over an E350 then. There's a lot of stuff that we just did because we were very young and we were very poor. And we should have stayed in more hotels. I had no I, – I took an energy drink you know, three hours before I crashed the van um, in 2006. And yeah, I think older me would have said we need to rest. The other, the other thing is for the small amount of time that higher specs is out on the road now, I realize if we were traveling now, we would be stopping every hour and a half to pee because we're all in our 40s, you know, or some of us are in our 30s. But in your 20s, you're like, oh, I'll be fine. I can hold it. And you could, we would go four hours, five hours without stopping. But um, I didn't realize at the time, but the 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 groups that built a big fan base in in all genres, but in particular uh, hip hop in the early two thousands coming out of the Twin Cities, it's we thought that was the only way you could tour. We didn't know there was a go out for a week and a half and only play four shows and sleep, you know, get three hotel rooms. the The budget wasn't there, but also the people we were looking up to who did have the budget still weren't doing that. So I like it was when I was playing bass with Dessa, she let me know that like some agent that she was talking to was like, basically the agent was like, we don't know what is wrong with all of you people from Minnesota who tour eight months a year and do it on a shoestring budget and, you know, frequently do overnight drives. And they're just like, we'll, we'll book the itineraries, but we don't know why y'all act like that. And I just thought that was the way everybody did it. It was not until then that I realized that there is a way to be better to your body, better to your mental health, and ultimately better to your safety. Because if you are traveling as much as we were, you are in danger of getting in a car accident like we did. I just I didn't know that was an option. I thought you just had to go as hard. That's as interesting because now we're we're at a we're a fork in a road where we're like, well, do we get more exposure or do we protect our mental health? So when Cake wants you to go out on tour, are you? semi-glad that you didn't go? I regret not opening up for cake in Europe. I think for obvious reasons. Like, wouldn't you be super glad if you could say, I did a tour opening up for cake in Europe? Like, it was it was at a moment where the health of the band was in question, the finances of the band were in question, and the value... Was it valuable for us to build up a fan base in Europe if we could never come back and make some money because cake cake you know they're a huge band but no opening act really gets much more than a break-even cut of the dough and so is this thing of like could we maximize it if we did do it and i think that's as a as a 22 year old with the whole career in front of them i'm like yeah i don't know if we could have maximized it maybe it was right but looking back as a 40 year old for where i ended up and where we're at i'm just kind of like i would have had a great time being out with my best friends opening up for cake and finding our way. Who knows if it would have been fruitful, but that call, that call was inspired a little bit by finances and a little bit about mental health of why are you going to double down on this band where you're struggling to find your way in the country you're from, you're struggling to find the audience. You really need to make it sustainable. Is it a distraction? Is it a financial too big of a financial risk to head out on the road? So those those decisions uh, definitely factored in. But then we also just got to the point where we got so successful by being the yes band. We got so successful by being the band 
that had very simple parameters. And if you met them, we would say yes to you. Parameters about proximity to our previous show, parameters about a minimum payment, parameters about all those things. But if, the, if those were met, you didn't have to ask us. Our booking agent could just say yes. But you get to that age where you start to go, okay, if, if Felix works till 7 p.m. every Friday, if we play a show far away on Friday, he's not going to be for the sound check. Are we going to put on as good of a show? Is it going to be as much fun? How many hotel rooms do we really need to have to feel comfortable on a Friday night as opposed to just you know survive? And you make those decisions. And now we are a band that has spent We've said no to a lot of things since then, but the thing is, Marcello, we've never had to say no to the music, and I think that's partially because we've said no to a lot of the business. So because we've passed on a lot of opportunities, we've maintained our energy, our space, and our imagination to make new songs, to work on new things. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure there's there's little corners of decisions I wish I had done differently, but the, if if you're if it's a long game and that's what higher specs is playing for sure, then it's a no brainer that you do what you think is best for the mental health of the band. Yeah, because I, I was watching the Super Bowl and it's like, man, Dr. Dre is playing the halftime show. He probably hasn't been on a stage since the Up and Smoke tour twenty years prior. You know, so it, why does it work for him and everybody else wants to be that yes band that that's you know always giving these guest appearances and going on tour? I think he's playing it right. And I also learned that the Super Bowl doesn't even pay its performers. You know, they get paid in exposure. So Prince. Eminem, Janet Jackson, doesn't matter. In fact, The Weeknd wanted his show to be over the top, so he spent $7 million of his own money on the show. So, you know, at, at that point, there was a critical mass you thought you would hit. Maybe your label thought otherwise. Maybe they didn't understand that, hey, this is exposure. Maybe we can't afford the expenses. Maybe we'll be in the red when right. you come back from, from touring with Cake Overseas, but it's that exposure. Yeah, and that was a little bit of a... Of a Basically, they were like, to our manager, they said, why would we be bringing you out to Europe before you guys got big here? And to which I would say, that's what worked for The Roots. That's what's worked for A Tribe Called Quest. That's what worked for a lot of bands of which, if I could be so modest, I think we can fit in the lineage of, right? Like, And to go, so a lot of these groups actually first established some groundswell of support in Europe, not not here at home. And so you sort of have this moment where you go, okay, I wish y'all had seen the longer game. On the other hand, you got the checkbook. And if you're not going to give us tour support for it, I don't know if I'm ready as a 22 year old to run up, you know, four grand, five grand of debt to make the thing happen. And so, you know, you, you reach those things. And again, I was baffled when I found out that the Super Bowl didn't pay artists because I think you should pay artists and you should especially pay high caliber artists. Even at that level, you have to make those decisions of, well, this looks pretty great for exposure. So we, it is going to work. And I know that they defray expenses. They'll pay union scale. So like Eminem got 190 bucks or something as a quote unquote vocalist, but it's, it's, you get to those moments where you kind of go, you got to figure out if it works for you. And what was great exposure to you at age 25 might not be great exposure to you at age 40. Like if somebody hits us up and goes, Hey man, there's like 25 people who really love you in Utah. When I'm 22, I'm going sweet. Let's get there 15 times and let's slowly turn that 25 people into 275 people. And maybe if we do well into 800 people, and then, then you hit a point where you go, 
all we can do for that audience is get them music digitally because it's not going to work to figure out. It's, we can't service 25 people, 35 people in Utah with a live performance. It's not economically feasible. So you have to sort of just stand back and, and, and think about different ways to connect with the audience. And not only do you have to deal with, with that and you know whoever's the suit behind the table, and we're not even talking about if they're going to drop you from the label. The thing that gets me angry is they have a right of first refusal for any and all of your music. And that's got to be tense. Yeah, until they just refuse it. <laughs> and then it becomes <laughs> a lot easier. So we, <laughs> we um, you know, in the end, my feelings about I have I have a lot of negative feelings about the record industry as a whole. I've had some difficulty in extracting the rights for our music to make sure that I controlled it or we controlled it in the digital domain, which I'm now happy to say we do. But ultimately, the record labels, especially as you approach basically the end of our record label career, are facing this this decision where they go, do we take what's somewhat successful already and supercharge it? Or do we take virtual unknowns and roll the dice on them? The guy who signed us, uh, the A&R guy, when he quit, they didn't replace him. They just stopped having an A&R guy. They started having people who are looking at pre-existing recordings, who are trying to license it and turn it into something bigger when it was already pretty big. So the model that would suggest that you need to keep rolling the dice on a band that had a pretty good first outing, but not a slam dunk first outing, is just that isn't there. It's it's being replaced by a, the ability to do a lot of that yourself. But from the label point of view, a lot of that has just never been replaced. So if I'm looking internally with the band, within the band, there's long arguments about path, long arguments about purpose, long arguments about strategy and more. What did you want? And how did it differ from the other members of the band to the point where you wanted the band to break up? I wanted more I wanted to tour more and play more music and I wanted us to grit our teeth and keep on going with it and I wanted all of that a little too late I think at that moment where there's a lot of burnout on the final significant tour we went on in 2006 at that moment I couldn't there's a lot of stuff I didn't know. I didn't know how like how similar the the annoyingnesses of day jobs are to the annoyingness of tour. So I sort of thought like, yeah, if, I, if I'm in an office, I'm going to like everybody and everybody's going to be cool. And how wrong was I about that? All the inner interpersonal dynamics you have, they're they're only amplified in a band, but they're still there outside of the band. Um, but at that moment, we couldn't write. We couldn't see eye to eye about where this thing was supposed to go. And we couldn't see eye to eye about where it was creatively or where it was business wise. And to some extent that just kind of, it, 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 it becomes it, it, both of those start things start to inform themselves. We, Hey, we need to submit something to the label so we can try to ask them to support us more, but they have, they don't even, they aren't even happy with us yet. So why are we doing this anyway? And, and, and suddenly you're in these rehearsals and they're barely rehearsals. You play five minutes of music and you start yelling at each other. And we couldn't see our way out of 
the stress to find the love we genuinely had for each other. And I don't know if we could have ever found that if it continued to be our primary source of income. The way you fight and argue about things when it's, you know, at this point, higher specs, I probably play with that band, I don't know, 15 times a year tops. I'm si- I'm sitting in a room in my house, in the basement of my house, dedicated to us. And we, we, we practice, you know, five, six times a year. But it's it's a completely different trajectory than when you're going, this is how you're going to get most of the money each month is from this band. What do we do? What's next? It changes it. And I think it was just, it was too much for us to find our way professionally at that time. So if you guys are practicing five or six times a year, even with this new record, how did a three-year stretch happen where you're not even really playing a note on the album? How does something like that happen? A pandemic. (laughs) Like uh, this record is probably due out in 2020 without the pandemic. So you're almost done. You're almost done tracking the record. And then you get to a point where you go, okay, no one can come into my house. We can't go into a studio. We can't go anywhere. That lasts through a fair amount of 2020. They do like one overdub session in 2021, mixing in 2021. We play a handful of shows like masks on, streaming shows and things like that. But I I really feel for the musicians who are in the heart of their career, in their you know early days of establishing it. You miss three years at that point, it's really hard to reset. I think there's going to be a lot of bands that probably would have hit. But their time kind of came and somebody had to get a job. Somebody decided they want to have kids. It's never really going to lock down. For us at the age we're at, I think it was very easy to be like, let's just take a back seat. Let's let's relax. And so it's through that process that a a band that still does during non-COVID times keep a pretty robust practice itinerary and a little bit of a, you know, active playing Minnesota clubs itinerary, just basically flatlined for a couple of years. We had to take care of our kids. We had to think about their vaccine status because even when everybody else got vaccinated, we all, you know, I guess three of us have kids who are under five years old for at least part of the pandemic. And then you make different choices. So that's that's how you really wind up with such the big drought of enthusiasm. And the other thing I'll add, Marcello, is that some of those rehearsals every year aren't like, what's the sound for the new record? Some of those rehearsals are like, okay, we're going to play a you know 20 song set. Let's dust off the cobwebs, try out a couple of these tunes. So they're much more kind of uh, just operational, like making sure the making sure the van still works effectively as opposed to deciding how the song's going to be composed. Oh, I'm glad to hear that because you know I, I was thinking maybe the the record sat for so long because maybe you guys weren't excited to record new music or you weren't excited to play again or you weren't excited for us to hear it. Instead, you know, you didn't just stare at a finished product for three years and tinker with it and tinker with it and tinker with it and then drive yourself mad. It's just, you were busy with life. It was the pandemic raising kids, but you had this finished product and it's, it's like, it's finished. It's ready to go. And it sounds at least from judging from the first song that I heard, it sounds really good. Cause I mean, if you complete a project and you let it sit for three years, uh, you can go mad refining it, refining it, refining it. So, uh, I'm glad that that's the case. Yes, there was very little turd polishing in this in this particular process. <laughs> it was more like, okay, it's all dialed in. 
okay, we got it mixed. Right now we're just working on artwork, making sure we're happy with the artwork, and then working on getting the vinyl pressed up because we're going to do full vinyl, which will be the first time there's been like a whole album from Higher Specs on on wax. Which we're and maybe you can well, – I know the, the plants are insane, but maybe you could reissue some of the old stuff too. Vinyl's crazy right now. You know, well, that that's the thing. I It's – I have an appetite to do some of that, and it's all available to us. We own all of our catalog now. There's no Razor and Tie has no stake in Higher Specs anymore. And I think that that is like, I just, I have to get it past the bureaucracy that is the six people in Higher Specs and go, like, look, if we spend, you know, because I mean, to do it right, you're probably going to spend, you know, 1800 bucks, you know, 2200 bucks to get that vinyl print. And I'm like, Listen, there's a lot of people that love a tiger dancing. There's a lot of people that love small steps. Like we get one of those out. I don't think we're going to be disappointed. I think we're going to sell through them. Not the day it goes up, but I think I buy one. six months. If you guys are listening, I'd buy one. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Peter, Marcello wants one. Now we're yeah. going to print up 251 records. <laughs> I want to emphasize the word here, but this podcast is all about the 10,000 hour journey and your 10,000 hours aren't as a musician. They're as a member of high respects and, Sean, you have experienced a life lived, my friend, and I appreciate you sharing a small slice of it with me. Oh, man, thank you, Marcello. I appreciate the opportunity.